everyone. My name is Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. On this podcast, I will be discussing with leading experts some of history's most infamous and maligned women. Within each episode, I do not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but I do strive to bring a more holistic and rounded understanding of each particular woman's story. Step back in time and come on this journey with me as we discover the lives and legacies of these fascinating women. In today's episode, we will be discussing the life and legacy of one of the 19th century's most infamous female serial killers, Belle Gunness. Discussing Belle with me today will be true crime historian Professor Harold Schechter, who has written extensively about some of our country's most infamous murderers and serial killers. Keep listening to learn more. In the remnants of a burned-out farmhouse were the bodies of three children in the arms of a woman. What made this a more grisly scene was the fact that the woman had no head. Headlines praised the woman for selflessly protecting and comforting her children in the last agonizing moments of life. However, the following days would reveal a far darker and violent story. Spread amongst the farm were the dismembered bodies of around 14 men, lured to the farm with the promises of marriage. The woman went from being a tragic mother to a monster. Reporters called her the Indiana Ogre, Black Widow, Mistress of the Castle of Death, and Hell's Bell. The real woman, Belle Gunness, quickly filled the public's imagination. How did such an unassuming woman manage to kill so many men? And was the woman inside the charred remains of the farmhouse really Belle Gunness, or just another one of her victims? Or was Belle Gunness somewhere out there, planning her next attack? In the immediate aftermath of Belle's death, or disappearance, her life and the spaces she occupied became a thing of morbid fascination, entertainment, and fear. Eventually, Belle became just one in a list of female serial killers who continue to intrigue the public today. What leads a woman to kill? And to kill so many? And what does our own fascination say about us? Belle Gunness was born Brunhild Storset on November 11, 1859 in Norway. Nothing remains of her early life aside from exaggerated legends. In 1881, Brunhild followed thousands of her countrymen and emigrated to America landing in Chicago and rechristening herself Belle. It was four years later that she married for the first time. By 1902, Belle was twice widowed and moved with her young children onto a farm she bought with the insurance money from her first husband. Her widowhood would later be revealed to be the beginning of her murderous ways. Here is Harold Schechter on the early crimes of Belle Gunness. Belle was a Norwegian immigrant who came over here in her early 20s. Uh, she married and murdered two husbands for their insurance money, uh, came into possession of a big farm, 
in a town called Laporte, Indiana City, and then began putting advertisements in Scandinavian language newspapers, luring lonely Norwegian bachelors to her farm uh, with the implication that, you know, she might end up marrying them. They would become co-owners of this big thriving farm. Personal. Kamli Vero, who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided, with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. To the dearest friend in all the world, no woman in the world can be happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell Vendor like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You are the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. Then I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you. Or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song. It is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in vile rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Once the unassuming men responded to the advertisement and began communications with Belle, the relationship would often culminate with them arriving on Belle's doorstep. Belle seemed to be intentional about the men she chose. As Harold points out, She would tend to select men who didn't have families over here and uh, and who had some money saved up. And she would instruct them to bring their life savings with them when they came. And, uh, you know, an unknown number of men, at least a dozen lonely Norwegian bachelors, showed up and were never seen again. You know, if anybody made inquiries, she would always say, well, you know, they got tired, they moved away, whatever. As it turned out, when a uh, one of these men would show up, she would feed him a, a nice Norwegian meal that was spiked with poison. And then while he lay in bed semi-conscious at night, she would bludgeon him to death, then drag him down uh, into her barn and dismember them and bury their body parts in her front yard and backyard. In 1908, Belle made a fatal mistake that would lead to her downfall. She lured a man named Andrew Helgelin to her farm. Andrew had a brother, who quickly grew suspicious when he stopped receiving letters from Andrew. It was with this event that Belle's life began to unravel. Here's Harold. Eventually, she did this with one guy who did have a brother, who became very suspicious because his brother had disappeared and uh, began to make inquiries. And he was scheduled to come visit her. And right before that, her farmhouse burned down. And, and, and when the ashes cooled, they found in the ruins of the cellar, the torso of a woman and, and embracing her three children. They were all dead, they were all burnt. But what they didn't find was her head. But at first she was regarded as a, uh, you know, a heroic figure, you know, the, the the assumption was her house had caught fire, she had gathered up her children, tried to save them, you know, the building collapsed, they died 
Anyway, when this uh, brother of one of her victims showed up, he began to poke around and uncovered actually the remains of his brother and then further search uncovered the dismembered remains of all of these men uh, in her yard. And it became, you know, this huge nationwide sensation, uh, you know, Bell Gunness's murder farm. One question that arose was whether the remains found in the cellar were actually those of Bell, because the head was missing. So there was a lot of speculation that she had lured some woman of her approximate stature to the farm, murdered her, substituted her body for her own, uh, set this blaze, and then and then escaped. So, I mean, that still remains something of a mystery that people are trying to solve. During Bell's lifetime and immediate legacy, the term serial killer did not yet exist. Now it fills the pages of true crime books, documentaries, horror movies, and more. But what makes someone a serial killer other than just a murderer? And what can that possibly reveal about Bell's own psyche? As Harold states. So the term serial killer, which an FBI profiler named Robert Ressler claimed to have coined in the 1970s, actually, as I discovered in my research, dated back to the 1930s, and it was originally coined to describe a very notorious German, what they used to call lust murderer, named Peter Curtin, uh, who operated during the Weimar era between the two world wars. So Curtin, you know, was a serial sex murderer, you know, who committed these hideous mutilation murders uh, during that period. Uh, and, 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 and when the term serial killer first entered uh, or first became sort of common usage in the 70s, 80s, you know, it was applied to people like Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and Edmund Kemperer. And, and these are all sadistic sex killers, as Curtin was. So that was and remains, you know, my idea of what a serial killer is. In other words, a serial killer is someone who commits these crimes because they derive, on some level, sadistic sexual pleasure from it. There's a famous culture critic, Camille Paglia, who says correctly, there's no such thing as a female Jack the Ripper. But that doesn't mean there's no such thing as a female serial killer. It just means that male and female serial murderers commit their crimes differently. And that there's some correlation between the sexual behavior of the human male and the sexual behavior of the female, the way these serial killers commit their acts. So, so male serial killers, it often tends to be First of all, they tend to prey on strangers. They'll just pick somebody up at a, well, like, you know, at a bar or whatever, or like Ted Bundy break into a sorority house. Or, and, and their crimes tend to be very phallic penetrative, you know, a lot of mutilation murder. Women serial killers operate in a different way. First of all, they kind of need to have a relationship with you before they'll kill you. You know, they, they kill intimates. They kill husbands, children, siblings, 
close friends. Also, they don't kill in the same way as men. They tend to, well, you could say, nurture them to death. <laughs> you know, they poison them. But, you know, but their crimes are no less sadistic. In fact, when I was researching Jane Toppin case, you know, I realized her crimes in a way were worse than Jack the Ripper's. You know, Jack the Ripper killed his victims very swiftly. He slit their throats. All the atrocities he committed on their bodies were done post-mortem, where somebody like Belle Gunness and, and others of her ilk, you know, took this incredible pleasure in slowly, you know, subjecting their victims to these slow, often agonizing deaths. And again, their victims were their own children, you know, their husbands, their siblings. Anyway, so yes, that's what I became convinced of. You know, the, the notion that there were no female serial murderers was ridiculous. It's just that women and men commit these crimes in a different kind of way. In the aftermath of her death and the discovery of the dismembered bodies of countless men, Bell's Farm quickly became a tourist destination, drawing in morbid onlookers reminiscent of public executions. Memorabilia, games, postcards, and activities sprung up on her property. The public fascination with true crime has long been an area of study for historians, anthropologists, and psychologists. People pore over photos of the crime scenes, study the mentality of the murderer and the victims, trying to discover motive and perhaps a sympathetic feature. But aside from the study of the people involved in the event, what does our fascination reveal about ourselves? As Harold speculates, It's as hard to explain a Jeffrey Dahmer as it is to explain a Mozart. You know, some, some levels of evil that you just can't explain. In fact, I come to think that one, one reason we become so fascinated with stories about people like Bundy and so on is that they serve kind of quasi-religious function. You know, they, they, they allow us to grapple with this issue that, you know, religion traditionally did, which was, you know, where, where does evil come from? Um, and again, you know, it's comforting to think that there's a simple, it could reduce it, you know, to the fact that, you know, again, their father beat them. And, you know, those are certainly contributing factors. But but ultimately, you know, so far, nobody's able to come up with a reason. So, you know, we've been sort of taught that there are no such thing as women serial killers. But I also think that, so my experience and understanding is that the preponderance of the audience for a lot of true crime stuff uh, is women. And you know, I, I did an anthology of true crime writing going back to the 17th century. And, and I begin the introduction by quoting Plato, who says, the virtuous man dreams what the wicked man does. Which is to say, you know, all of us law-abiding people possess what the psychologist Carl Jung called the shadow side. You know, there are all these dark, forbidden impulses 
that we don't want to acknowledge. And in fact, not only don't want to acknowledge, but, you know, would find totally abhorrent according to our everyday morality, but are there, you know, the desire to kill, you know, what for the id, right? The savage id. I think women might be particularly attracted to stories about female serial killers, especially ones who kill men, <laughs> you know, kill husbands or kill children for that matter, because they're enacting dark forbidden fantasies that law-abiding, highly moral, well-adjusted, civilized women possess on some level. You know, we see these dark fantasies being acted out, then the people being punished for them. So that kind of relieves us of guilt for having those fantasies. As the Broadway musical Wicked states in the opening number, Glinda the Good Witch asks, are people born wicked or do they have wickedness thrust upon them? This has been a major question in murder cases, especially with serial killers, for centuries. Was the murderer abused by a parent, a spouse, a stranger? Did that lead to a psychological break or an intense need for revenge? Were they an unassuming member of the public? or a ticking time bomb that were warily watched by family and neighbors. There is a constant preoccupation with the question, why? For women like Belle, the public often grapple with questions like, why did a woman do such a thing? Were women even capable of this? Here's Harold. You know, the other question, of course, becomes one of motive. You know, partly, you know, with these female serial murders, there often is a mercenary element to the crimes. You know, they often will murder husbands for their life insurance policy, but that, but that's not always the case. Uh, you know, again, many of them kill their own children, some of whom they do insure in advance of the killings, but, you know, often that's not the case. You know, sometimes they just get tired of taking care of the kids, but, but again, you know, in the case of Belle, for example, she was very well off. You know, she had already come into possession of these two hefty insurance policies from her husband's, and she was the owner of the substantial farm. So the money, you know, couldn't have been the primary motive. You know, there had to be, obviously, an element of sadism, uh, you know, and also some you know, extreme antipathy toward men. You, you know, one thing about researching the lives of notorious serial killers is until they become notorious serial killers, people don't pay much attention to them. So you, you don't have a lot of information about their early lives. You know, there are all these stories <clears throat> that Bell uh, had, you know, when she was still over in Norway had been impregnated by the son of a landowner uh, who then kicked her in the stomach and forced her to miscarry and so on and so forth. You know, it seems almost too tidy, you know, that kind of thing. But it's very, very, you know, possible from what one knows about her life, which was very hard scrabble, you know, to think that, uh, you know, she was subjected to various kinds of humiliation at the hands of uh, men. So there's a feminist critic named Ann Jones uh, who wrote 
a groundbreaking book called Women Who Kill. From Ann Jones's point of view, some of these crimes, these women, you know, this violent rebellion, you might say, against this oppressive patriarchy. And, uh, and so I, I think that for some feminist critics, that is a kind of redeeming feature. It can at times be difficult to prescribe a distinct legacy to women like Belle Gunness. As I was creating this podcast, it was important to not just pick women that could be exonerated or brought into a nuanced shade of gray. Sometimes these women are more evil than sympathetic. In the end, Belle may have murdered for the sole reason that she enjoyed it. Nothing more and nothing less. For Harold, personally, what he finds so fascinating about Belle and other women like her is much broader than mere motive or tactics. It provides a deeper look into our own psyche at any given time in our history. Well, you know, I wrote the book. One of the reasons that I choose the subjects that I do, you know, is because I feel these are figures, significant figures, uh, that, uh, you know, whose stories have been lost to history. Um, so, you know, in that sense, I feel it's important to bring that back to public attention. You know, I see my books also as social histories in a way, you know, because the way the public responds to the crime at the time, the kind of crimes they are, you know, tells you a lot about you know, what's going on in, in, in the collective psyche at the time. If you read any newspaper anywhere on any day of any year, you're going to find horrific murders. And out of that incredible welter, a tiny infinitesimal number of murders, you know, become these cultural sensations, you know, and why those particular murders so grip the public's interest tells you a lot about what's going on in society at that moment you know what we're really afraid of or what people are really fantasizing about the thing with bell uh that was unique had to do with her butchering of these men like farm animals but you know but obviously at the time you know she was operating you know, roughly at the same time, let's say, as Lizzie Borden. And one of the reasons Lizzie Borden was never convicted, although, in my opinion, <laughs> as well as the opinion of them, she was clearly guilty, you know, is that she was this respectable woman. You know, the, the view of women at that time was, again, that they, you know, just not capable of such kind of crimes. So, you know, I think, um, you know, Bell seemed to be such a complete violation. You know, the stereotype, you know, that kind of that era's stereotype of what women, who women were, you know, what they were capable of. Uh, you know, she was this domestic monster. And although I haven't thought of it in these terms, you know, it was also the time that you know, the early feminist movement was getting going. The new woman was starting to appear. I mean, just barely was on the scene. 
So, you know, she might have been taken, you know, as a monstrous incarnation, you know, of what, uh, you know, this new liberated woman might be capable of, you know, seen as this horrible monster. So. 